Welcome to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm B. Eggard, and throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Hello, and welcome to the final episode of the Vector-Borne Disease series of the Connecting Citizens Science podcast. I'm B. Eggard from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, and before she introduces herself for the last time, I'd just like to say a big thank you to my co-host Fatu for this series. You've been really wonderful, and you've brought loads of fascinating insights to the podcast. Thank you, B. Um, I really appreciate this and thank you for having me as a co-host. Um, it's been a wonderful ride and uh, we've had the opportunity to talk to many amazing speakers. And today we will have an additional one. So a little introduction about myself. Um, I am from the Gambia. I work at the Institute of Tropical Medicine uh, in Belgium, Antwerp. And I have worked on malaria uh, projects, which also include uh, the application of community participatory approaches. And today, our two uh, guests that we have, I have, I work with them as well. They are my colleagues and friends as well. So I'm really happy to have them on. And B, you can, you know, introduce them for our audience. Sure. Thanks, Fatu. So, yeah, I'm really excited to introduce our guests for today. Um, we have Dr. Joan Muela, who is a lecturer and senior research at the Rovira uh, y Virgili University in Tarragona in Spain and also at the Pastuis Institute in Switzerland. And we also have Yuriko Masunaga, who's a PhD student in medical anthropology from the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp and the University of Amsterdam. Joan and Yuriko will be talking to us about community participation in health projects and specifically a bit about their work in the Gambia, developing a novel participatory approach that they call the Community Lab of Ideas for Health, um, that they use to engage communities in shaping implementation of a malaria elimination trial. So thanks so much for joining us today, Joanne and Yuriko. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Yeah. And Fado, thank you so much. My pleasure. Awesome. So to begin today's podcast, um, we wondered if you could give us a little bit of a background about the kinds of projects you work on and also the contexts that you work in so we can get to know your work a little bit. Um, so, Joanne, do you want to go first on this question? Oh, thank you. Yes, well, I'm a medical anthropologist and working in health-related projects and programs from probably 30 years now, something like that. And and mostly I work in in I started working in Tanzania and then in several African countries, Mexico also and, and other Latin American countries, and in Asian in South Asia, so Laos, Gambia, and Cambodia. And well, it's always we start uh, working in malaria, and then you become a malaria. You you, you become a, you know working in this field for for all your life. It's only in Mexico that uh, I was working in dengue programs, but otherwise malaria. <laughs> Great, thank you. And Eureka, can we hear a bit from you? Yes. Um... So my name is Yuriko. Thanks for having me. Uh, very excited today. I am, as uh, as you introduced me already, I'm a PhD student, and um, I had privilege to always work with Joanne. Um, 
in uh, in this malaria uh, elimination project that happened in the Gambia and also in Southeast Asia, uh, Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia. And um, in in both projects, we applied uh, the the participatory approach, community participatory approach that we uh, kind of developed um, during the project happening in the Gambia. And um, yeah, I'm very excited to talk uh, more about uh, how we approached the community and what was the outcome of it. Um, maybe also a pitfall of it. Um, very excited. Right. Wonderful. Yeah, so we'd love it if you could give us kind of an overview of the approaches that were part of the CLI, um, CLI approach that you developed and give the listeners a little bit of a background to, um, yeah, to what the approach is and how it works. Yeah, so initially we, we, we started uh, our project in the Gambia with a malaria elimination uh, randomized control uh, trial led by the Medical Research Council in the Gambia. And the project um, aimed to reduce the prevalence of malaria in this study setting uh, by treating malaria patients, but also patients, uh, household members. So in the control groups or villages, uh, only the malaria patients receive uh, the treatment, which was uh, standard procedures. But in the intervention villages, um, like household members of malaria patients also needed to take uh, malaria treatment medicines. And that held a lot of challenges because it meant uh, that the household, household member could be uh, healthy individuals or asymptomatic individuals uh, who could be uh, unwilling to take medicine. So we needed to really uh, communicate with uh, communities how to actually implement this trial because the trial had its objectives, but didn't really know uh, how it should be uh, implemented and approached to communities. So we, as a, in a, it was a transdisciplinary research, meaning that there were uh, experts from different disciplines like epidemiology, health system, health economy, uh, communities, and social science. So we were in the group of social science and uh, really, from the beginning of of uh, like um, from the beginning of understanding the context, like social, cultural, uh, political, uh, economic situation in the village, um, and discussing with them, negotiating what can be done, uh, co-developing strategies to implement this research uh, or trial, uh, monitoring process. In every steps, we we really work together with community uh, members. So that's the summary of it. Uh, Joanne, if you'd like to add, because it's very uh, broad. No, I would just emphasize something. It's like, I mean, in all the projects you work with the community and, and implementers talk to the community and, and explain what to do. And some people educate the community and, and or inform the community, but it's always unidirectional. I mean, it's telling, it's one direction, telling what to do, the best way, and then the feedback is how to improve what is already decided. And then people can say, well, better do this, that is not going to work. And then the project is adapting. But we had the chance, and that is not so common. We had the chance 
to be allowed from the beginning, from the uh, from the institutions and the partners working uh, we're working with, to say, okay, you can develop right from the beginning the entire strategy. Then, uh, so because it's a proper implementation research right from the beginning with the community that is really uncommon, and 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 for that you 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 need this let's say this vision from the beginning from the from the lead uh, or people in lead of the project to to really see that that is the right way and and it is to my to my perspective yeah that's a really really interesting to hear about and i feel so often you hear about communities sort of being fully engaged but at a single stage of the research process and it's really great to hear how that was really the vision from the beginning um Wonderful. So could we hear a little bit more about any sort of specific methods or approaches that you use to engage with communities at any stage of the research process? Could you give us a bit of an insight into that? Um, for, for the, the, um, the CLI, we call it CLI, it stands for a Community Lab of Ideas for Health, uh, C-L-I-H, uh, CLI. Uh, for that, um, participatory approach, we used uh, ethnographic studies, which was very, very uh, key to start uh, the research. And uh, that mainly, it was, it was mainly a qualitative, but we also used quantitative. That means uh, we use mixed method approach. And from this ethnographic uh, study, we um, we had a lot of basic uh, baseline information as well as uh, we had information on the the key informant that we were uh, closely we decided to closely work with so we did stakeholder analysis and then uh, based on the information we gathered from ethnographic study uh, we held participatory discussions with these key key stakeholders um, to, to develop, uh, to discuss, you know, all these, uh, foreseen obstacles, uh, challenges, what can be done, what can be addressed, uh, to create, um, the first, like, implementation strategy, which was implemented in the year one of the trial. But at the same time of the implementation, we kept communication with the communities and, and we did monitoring uh, together with community members again. Um, and then, uh, like, so it, the communication with community was uh, iterative and interactive and always happening at the same time as a trial implementation. So we, that uh, enabled us to refine and adapt and improve uh, the strategies for year two trial because we had uh, several years of trial implementation. No, it's true. I mean, I just want to emphasize the, and then we can go uh, to more details, but I really want to emphasize the role of ethnography because in, you know, in many projects, it's assumed that people know everything about their communities. And so it's like you work in the epidemiology side or entomology side, or and and then uh, the community part is left in the hands of the community. But uh, I think that if you give a look from outside and you go to the community and you say, "Well, what can we do?" and they say, "Well, 
maybe women should be excluded because uh, whatever. And then we can say, well, but look, there are women in, in this area that are really active in this field. So they can, and you only can say that if you know it. And so it's, it's, it's a kind of dialogue where you provide results from many different areas of this of this community to the people who live in the communities, but uh, not necessarily reflect on every aspect of, of their daily life or do not uh, understand the, I don't know, the, let's say the macro-political factors affecting some issues. So it's, it's good. And, and my impression is that people in the communities really uh, acknowledge this, this exchange of information and 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 this debate and always that is in in a respectful way but but it's really to me it's really important to to co-share and not to assume that people i mean people live their lives and people live in their communities but uh if you bring outsider knowledge and our training in anthropology that can really really uh create a good uh a good base for dialogue and then to develop ideas from from here is much easier I think. Mm. it's it's really true that we 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 had quite very intensive uh, ethnographic period uh, with uh, joanne and fatu and we we all stayed in uh, these villages and and trying to talk to uh, many people so that we we get uh information from very uh you know heterogeneous population you know not just limited to uh people the vocal people in the village or people in in some kind of positions you know but we really try to to uh, get information from women uh farmers uh traditional healers you know, all different kind of people. And and that really, I think ethnographic study is, is important in gaining in information, but also to uh, create relationship with people because people uh, recognize you then and then remembers you. And because we, you know, we stay in villages and really talk to people, uh, they open up uh, with you. So you realize at first that, the answers people give you is kind of in the template, kind of. Uh, like, for example, uh, regarding malaria question, for example, like, you know, if you ask about uh, perception of malaria and they go, they all go like, because they know that we are from malaria project, they go like, oh, malaria is a very, very important issue here. We need to solve these. Uh, we know what to do. We sleep under the mosquito net every night, da, 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 da. But as you spend more time with them and they go like, you know, uh, we are actually very, uh, we, we enjoy very much, uh, you know, like socializing with each other. So we go out at night, chat, stay outside until two o'clock in the morning. And then during then mosquito bites. And yes, we know the risk of malaria, but life goes on kind of uh, stuff. Um, so you you get like more the information more close to their real life settings um and also as joan was saying like we 
start to kind of understand or detect what kind of information is coming from the the ideal uh, answers that they feel they have to tell us or or some answers that is influenced by uh, the previous projects that were in the region and we can differentiate that from their like uh, real life uh, answers I, I'm not sure if I am making any sense um, yeah so I would say that's very important yeah that's really really interesting to hear and I think um the other speakers we've had on this episode they haven't really mentioned the ethnographic approach and I think it's a really um you know you make such a good a good case for it and why it's important for building on um for you know further sort of participatory um aspects later on um and I also think I've heard it's an interesting context in the Gambia because obviously the MRC unit's been there for such a long time that people are very used to having researchers doing work in that area so I think um yeah, I can imagine it's a really interesting dynamic in that in that sense as well. Um, yeah, so I'm going to pass over to Fatu to ask you some more questions now. I think I would just touch on that that point that you made, uh, B, because of the presence of MRC in the country of a particular institution and how this can also influence how people respond to interventions. And because I know that both Joanna and Yuriko have worked in another context in Southeast Asia where um, the context is different. Um, I just, if they can just talk a little bit in terms of their experience, how like context really matters when you think of what kind of approach do we use here? Do we, we've developed a particular way of doing community participation? Do we now go and apply the same kind of strategy in a particular context or not? What do we do? How do we approach this or not? So if you can just talk about that using your experience of working also in a malaria project in Southeast Asia. Uh, Juan? Uh, yes, good question. I think that, I mean, CLI is, is an approach and, and the aim of this approach is to provide a systematic way of doing things. So you start ethnography, then stakeholder analysis, and then you go to the workshops, and and then you go to the monitoring. So it's it's like a it's like a systematized process, and also an, a very important aim is that we work more and more in systems, not just in cause effect or something. So we we need to to understand the entire system. That is why it's important to understand all the all the factors at play and also all the possible effects of the of the intervention, like in trust. I mean, you can have very high adherence, but lose uh, have, uh, have uh, I mean, uh, damaging in trust or damaging in 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 social relationship, or you can affect social cohesion in positive or negative. It depends. So it's uh, we have to to have that in mind. It's a systematic and systemic way of thinking uh, an intervention. And of course, uh, the context matters and matters very much. I mean, and also, uh, it's very important to see how people perceive the project and the meaning that uh, people give to this project and the utility 
people think can have from this project. For example, in that is a nice work Yoriko is doing in in terms of understanding how, uh, for example, in communities where where they have uh, a conflict or conflict relationship with uh, some neighbors, they can use the project in terms to reinforce their position or or counteracts hegemony or or this political. I mean, a project is a political thing, so we have to be aware of that. If you work with the municipality or if you work with the with the local uh, government, you have to see what are the the political tensions uh, behind. So it's uh, all the things you you have to take into account, and it depends if it's rural or how rural it is, and the local organization, the micropolitics, but also the more um, uh, let's say national politics, and so you have to take everything into account and and of course then you have to to adapt and but uh it's really really important not to be naive because if, if you are naive you create you can be very nice but you can create more damage than than benefits so that... true and Yuriko, do you want to add to yeah yes i i absolutely agree with john that uh context does matter a lot i mean uh as Joan said, CLI is really, uh, you know, like systemic and, and procedures, but very flexible. Um, so we believe that it's applicable in, in different places. But, um, yeah, it changes. For example, in the Gambia, I mean, the, the people are having lots of projects uh, from uh, MRC or different uh, NGOs or governmental projects. And... They are very open, uh, so it was kind of uh, easy for us to probably apply this. Uh, where in uh, some places in Southeast Asia, for example, we were working with uh, ethnic minority groups in very remote uh, area who is facing some kind of hegemony. Uh, then there is, it becomes a bit more sensitive for outsiders to go into this area to do some project. And although we, I, you know, it's, it's really, you cannot just uh, bring a tool to different places and, and, and try to do the same things. I mean, for, for Clyde as well, I think it's important to, to be flexible, you know, like we, we believe this, steps could work but we need to be open to say that okay in this context it doesn't work so let's try to readapt uh, the steps or or try to bring in different people because um i think we were lucky in the gambia that uh, we were working in such a great team like really diverse team with you fatu and joan and we we have different backgrounds and we're from different places um in Southeast Asian context, in one country, for example, Laos, I really felt that we need to invest in a local, local by, I, I mean, is this ethnic minority locals, not just the Lao, Laotian, um, to, to invest in uh, having a local researcher with us. Or, you know, like, it's, it's really important. It's, it's really like, um, 
oh, I don't know, I cannot think of any good metaphor, but uh, it's really a life thing, you know? You cannot just follow the procedures, but like it's a, a, a bit like cooking. You're cooking something and you taste uh, what you're cooking and a bit of salt is mis missing. So you, not really to ditch the recipe, but you kind of go with your own way. So you need to assess uh, always. That's a good point. And I think being like really open to this idea that, um, like Joanne said, also not to be very naive, uh, but to be very open that there would be differences. And yeah, these they can also be unexpected, you know. For instance, let's say in the context of the pandemic, uh, doing such research, let's say in Belgium and using this sort of participatory approach, it could be that it works, but it could be that it could be also very difficult to see. Not to say that the approach doesn't work, but I think because of a particular kind of situation, yeah, it's not the most applicable kind of thing to do, you know, in a certain way. But yeah, I, I think it's very nice to, to, to see uh, from your experience looking at different contexts and how it matters. Um, but looking at the success of it also uh, and how it can really work very nicely if you can just talk a little bit on the outcomes of using such an approach. Yoriko, let's say in the Gambia, in the particular trial that you worked in, uh, what do you think was the outcome of using such an approach in that particular uh, intervention? Uh, first, as I said before, that uh, I, it's it's not just one thing affecting uh, the outcome, but it's the process, whole process uh, that we took that was iterative and reflective and all that. Um, uh, we have the, also the numbers that we had high adherence. Fatu studied on that, so she she she's an expert on that. But we had high adherence uh, for the people taking medicine, although there was challenges, as I said before, that um, the household members had to take and self-administered medicine. Um, and regardless of that, we had high adherence. That meant that communities really understood uh, what we were doing and accepted what we were doing. And I believe it's it's the uh, it's the uh, trust MRC has been creating in the region, but it's also the approach we've been taking. I I feel, and um, other kind of stuff is that um, I think we really managed to to kind of Joanne and I say it uh, be out of the project box. Uh, People are so influenced unconsciously by the project knowledge, which is like the, the knowledge that other projects uh, brings. Like a lot of people repeated so many times, like, oh, prevention is better than cure. We should sleep in the mosquito net. You know, all these phrases, uh, a lot of people repeated that. And it's really a reflection of what they've been kind of told by the project before. Uh, but we really managed to, to discuss with them that, okay, let's be out of this project box and think inside the box uh, to see what really can work for you in this uh, particular settings. So um, 
that was a successful outcome, I would say. Mm. Mm. Nice, nice. And Juan, do you uh, want to also talk a little bit also in terms of uh, challenges that perhaps could be faced when engaging uh, communities? I think that uh, there are two main challenges in all these kind of projects. One is uh, is the trust issue. I mean, how to build trust with communities that are used. Uh, I mean, too many projects going there and and different implementation strategies and usually this top-down approach and having back the, the government and it's, it's a kind of pressure that I have to comply, I have to do that because there is a force in front of me uh, telling me to do that. So that's that kind of, uh, even though they can be nice and can be um, working for the community and for the health of the community, it's just the approach that is somehow intimidating and, and, and creating power imbalance. So that in a way, uh, that works uh, because of this pressure, not because of trust. So then uh, there is a trust, for example, in the MRC, there is a high trust because uh, it's a project, it's an institution providing care for for many years, and and people trust the institution. But but uh, this trust doesn't mean that they don't have this uh, this. Uh, force in, in front of them and the fear that if they don't comply with the project they in, in a way they can be punished by the MRC and being excluded from 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 projects and so it's, that, I mean there is a kind of pressure so how to build horizontal trust with the with the, with the communities that is an, an issue and I think that the only way, is to be there, is, is to talk, is, I mean, is to go from institutional ta- uh, um, trust to um, uh, dialogical trust and to, uh, you know, to communication trust. And and from that, that you have to be there and you have to talk. And, and, and here there is something that I don't like particularly, but we, but it's like that, is the personal nature of people i mean you can have very very empathetic people and distant people shy people and the way you behave and the way they perceive how you behave that can have a, an impact also is uh, it has to be if you are white or or, or you know or black or if they perceive you in that way or in, it's, it's everything Many things that you cannot control matter, so it's uh, it's uh, it's also important to have that into account. And 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 the other thing is what Yoriko said: is like people are used to all these all these messages, and it's really really difficult to 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 go out of that. And and because then it's just the repetition of you know it's a, a repeat and repeat and repeat, and to break that is quite quite difficult so we have to find the ways to you know to how to for example uh if uh, people talk about if if you ask about health they talk about the health of the family the health of the child but 
it's difficult that they, I mean, they know, but they don't connect the economic impact of a disease with, with the issue of health. So it's, and if you can make these connections, then people can, can see a lot of uh, opportunities and ways of doing and, and, and also it gives uh, the motivation to, to, to participate. So it's just all this, you know, is uh, in a way systemic, but in another way you have to, to work with many different, you know, uh, elements and, and, and also you have to be, uh, you know, you have, sometimes you are tired and then you have to motivate yourself because this tiredness can affect also the, the, the project. So it's uh, many things at personal level, uh, interactional level, political level. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, it just also just made me think a little bit more in terms of this sort of repetitive messages that we get from the communities, like also the fallacy of the health education model that has been passed down for so many years not just health education, but also just in development, right? And how communities are educated, right? And many times you show that this does not reflect in changing behavior. But I think what's important is how these messages actually stick stick into people's minds, that they use this sort of as a tool to just, you know, tell you what you also want to hear. <laughs> yeah, very interested. Okay, so just looking at it, I think the next uh thing to, to, to kind of see is, or kind of looking at it from uh, to end this uh, whole uh, conversation up is, I just want to ask both of you, like if you, you, you know of a researcher or a student or anybody that is sort of designing a project and they, they, they say, oh, we want to engage communities uh, as part of the work that we do. What are those things that you ask them to consider beforehand? You know, in writing, let's say their proposal. You know, what what are those things that they should consider first that are quite key that you should not be able to miss out if you really want to go and start engaging communities? John, well, I just I mean I always say something is take people seriously, listen. And I mean, it's not so important to talk, it's important to listen and take them seriously because, you know, there are all these uh, paternalistic, super empathic or whatever ways to, no, it's just be normal, just to listen, talk and be respectful and, you know. Yeah, I, I think that it's just that. And then, you know, it's a very old anecdote of Levi-Strauss, uh, uh, one of the myths in, in anthropology. And it, it was a student going to him and saying, Master, uh, I'm going to do field work. What can I do? And and what, what please, Master, tell me. And he said, well, take a, take a pen and take a, a note. Uh, you know, paper and just write <laughs> what people tell you. <laughs> I think that is this uh, capacity and, and it's also, as Yoriko said, it's a mental status that you have to be, uh, you know, just uh, to me is a lot of listening and then going back, analyzing. Uh, you know, it's like you have to take distance and then 
to break the distance and then take distance, break the distances. It's a lot of uh, personal training. And I think that, that, for example, in several courses, you can you can do this kind of training that can be very... To me, that's... I mean... I would say, um, to add, I would say, don't assume. Uh, because I think a lot of times we go like... I, especially if you repeat uh, same kind of studies or if you're getting used to collecting uh, data or getting used to the field of research, you kind of have reference to what you do, but um, you never know, don't assume because this, the attitude of assumption can also interact uh, communication. Like you could, you know, as John says, I really believe it's about uh, communicating, like listening and engaging and and uh, be present. So if you assume that could all go ways like, okay, I, 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 I know already this is what's happening. I don't need to ask or, or you forget to be patient or empathic, em, empathetic. <laughs> so um yeah i say don't assume and and really it's i think if you are open uh to yourself and to have other uh, ideas and people would also open up for you it's really uh the fundamental human to human interaction uh uh, I'm noticing like some similarities between this episode and the first one where, you know, we talked about the empathic, empathetic kind of approach, uh, but also how this conversation is also getting quite deep. <laughs> the other series were like that. But anyway, uh, B, I will give the floor to you and yeah, you can kind of conclude. Great. So before I do a wrap up at the end, I wondered if I could ask a bonus question that's more practical. Um, so you've both been talking about, yeah, and especially in this last question, the importance of listening and open communication and sort of being present and responsive. Um, I wondered what your opinions are on the impact of language differences when doing this sort of work and how that influences how those processes can go and if you have any experiences of working across language barriers. <laughs> I have very um <laughs> I have very interesting funny story. Um that we were in John John and I were in Cambodia and uh we don't speak speak uh Khmer Khmer language at all. So we needed we always uh, had uh, our field workers with us who uh, translated conversation. And uh, of course, you know, to understand the language, to be able to understand the language and understand what people are telling you is very, very important, of course. So if you don't speak the language, you will need to find a really good uh, field worker who could translate the language for you. But also it, when it comes to really, um, again, going back to human to human interaction, sometimes language uh, don't matter because when we were in Cambodia and one day uh, we really needed to go to remote, remote areas by a motorbike going through the mountains. 
And um, I needed to go, but Joan needed to stay in the village. And I needed to, to conduct interviews, so I needed to bring a field worker with me. And uh, I spent, I don't know, six, seven hours in the field, came back to the village where Joan was uh, without a translator. <laughs> and I've heard uh, from um, you know, people in the community through translator that Joan was talking like 30 minutes or an hour with a monk <laughs> in this village. <laughs> Without understanding each other, you know, Joan doesn't speak Khmer and this monk doesn't speak Spanish or English. But like they were really like, you know, creating a, a friendship together. So, yeah, in that in that regard, it's really. Yeah, like how far do we need to really be able to speak like tech, in a technical term? Huh? To, to understand the language, to build a relationship with, with other people. But yes, of course, if you need to do interview, you need to be able to understand. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that um, nonverbal communication is so, so important in these scenarios as well. And it's, um, yeah, it's a great story. Do you want to add anything to that story, Joan? <laughs> No, I just to say that one uh, one of the advantages of not understanding each other is that you you understand what you want, so you can create a lot of of working misunderstandings that can be really fruitful for the <laughs> for the relationship. I, I I just wanted to to say something that uh, to me, uh, I mean, I, I did a lot of field work in in South America or in, in, and in Mexico and. Of course, uh, my 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 language is Spanish. I can and I can speak uh, fluently and and interact very well with the people. So, but uh, sometimes, for example, in the Gambia, we had really good and, and um, uh, people translating for us. And but it's more than translating. It's a, it's a kind of social interaction. So it's not. Uh, it's not an interview where you you talk to another person. It's a dialogue among three people, and and that can be a, an added value of uh, of an interview. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it increases the level of communication in a way, you know. And while I, I tell you, I, I had better interviews in Gambia with uh, with. Uh, really good field workers than than maybe in Mexico with just asking the other person is also because uh, the translator creates a link between the two of us that uh, is, is non-existent if if I'm with this uh, like like say peasant in in Mexico that see me like the former in, uh, you know, conqueror of their land and, and, and all these things. So it's, it's all these things at, at play. So it's not assumed that because you understand the language, the interview will be, will be better. So. <laughs> I like that, that framing of the kind of added dimension of working through a translator rather than it detracting from the process. I think that's a really, yeah, I've never thought about framing it like that. So thank you for that insight. I just wanted to add, because I remember one thing, wherever we did our interviews, I feel like I would always, like, because I, I, I 
because in the field setting, I spoke at least two uh, two languages and the other didn't. So I always felt like I would finish really early with my interviews. And sometimes when we go with, uh, let's say, Yuriko and also a half-field worker, then we will sit and wait and wait and wait. But it just shows like what Joan was saying, because I think that also because if you are fluent in the language as well, the interaction is different. And that depth that you can get from the interview, you you kind of miss that sort of opportunity if you have, let's say, another person in between, because I think it also gives you an opportunity to probe a little bit more, you know? I always remember sitting there like, what is Yuriko doing with uh, Ibrahim? What was the field worker? And they would take ages. But I think also now, if you think about it later on, actually you get really nice, better data. <laughs> yeah, so I just want to, yeah, um, reiterate a big a big thank you for taking part in this conversation. I've really enjoyed, um, yeah, hearing more about your approach to ethnography in general and also how it fits in with the kind of yeah systematic and systemic framing of Cly as you mentioned. I think that's a yeah a really um I've never heard of an approach like it and it's it's great to hear about that in more detail. And also I've really enjoyed, you know, hearing a bit more about the dynamics of working in the Gambia and how that relates to your positionalities and also like the historic history of the context. So been a really really interesting discussion and i just want to say yeah big thank you for joining and thanks again to fatu for being a wonderful co-host for this series thank you for having me <laughs> thank, you. thank you so much i had really good time thank you for having us